everyone. Welcome back to the Socialist Rifle Association podcast. Yeah, it's 2020 now. Isn't that something? It sure is. Well, as usual, I'm Faye. And I'm Austin. And we're recording this on January 21st. And yesterday was the uh, date of the 2020 Gun Lobby Day in Richmond, Virginia, which we all thought was going to be a train wreck and was only slightly less of a train wreck than we'd maybe anticipated. Yeah, there were a lot more Nazis there than you'd hope for, but there are a lot more Nazis in America than you'd hope for. So no news there, really. But I saw some images that there were also a lot of more leftist perspectives there. There were some people with Defend Equality stickers and um, some people saying that uh, with signs like armed minorities are harder to oppress, which is, you know, obviously what we're all about here. Definitely. And it's something to keep in mind. Like we talk about Nazis showing up to these events. Most of the people at this event were not Nazis. Some of them have problematic views that we would not endorse, but there's a difference between a you know reactionary conservative and a straight up Nazi. And most of the people who were there were not Nazis. Yeah, th- there were at least a few accounts of people fully uh, disavowing some of the Nazis there. They were saying like, essentially, they need to get the fuck out of this rally. They're not welcome here. This is for they they really like claiming the mantle of a freedom lover. They really like being called freedom lovers. So there were a lot of freedom lovers there who we at least like that they don't like Nazis. Yeah, and that's really like my main complaint with the gun community at large. It's not that there are Nazis who are gun owners. It's that there are Nazis that are gun owners that don't get driven out of gun-friendly spaces. Like if you come in looking like Antifa, these people will immediately shut down, shut you out, harass you, and probably assault you if, if they have you pegged that way. But, you know, a lot of the times... If there's a neo-Nazi in a conservative rally like this, they'll take a live and let live approach, which to have some fucking backbone and do something about these people in your community. And I'm really glad to see that some people in the Second Amendment rights community are willing to do that. But it, there needs to be a lot more people to say, no, you shouldn't be here. And it's also incumbent upon firearms institutions and firearms businesses to do that, like gun shows. All right. The, the people who organize gun shows, can you all please collectively agree to not let the guy with the booth full of Nazi paraphernalia set up shop at your gun show? Could you just like decline his permit, say, nah, no, go set that up in a shack down by the highway if you want to do that shit. You know, we don't need someone selling iron crosses here. If you want to sell Lugers or whatever, fine. This isn't a space for Nazis, but you know, so often it turns out that it is. So, you know, the more this Second Amendment community pushes back and pushes these people out of their community, I think the stronger the Second Amendment movement will be and the more credibility they'll have when arguing with liberals. Yeah, that that guy's not a historian. He's he's cosplaying like he's cosplaying a thing that a thing that he thinks is rad. (laughs) Like I think that a lot of gun owners would be better off if they just unironically embraced cosplay instead of trying to project all of their military dress-up activities instead of trying to project that in every case as a militia thing. (laughs) Maybe you just like dressing up as a soldier. Maybe you should just do that without the pretense of having to find an excuse to fear a coming race war or they're going to take your guns and you're going to go out and shoot liberals or whatever. Maybe you don't need that. Maybe just pretend. Pretend that you're shooting whatever. (laughs) I'd respect some of the more right-leaning people at those gun rallies if they came in their fursonas. Like, don't leave it at home. You know, it's time to be. It's time to be proud. Yeah. Well, 
sometimes you shouldn't be proud. Uh, there was a uh, there's uh, some pictures of a guy walking around with a 50 caliber Barrett uh, anti-material rifle, you know, a ten thousand dollar gun. He's wearing a helmet that's too small. He's wearing a plate carrier that's not protecting his uh, upper chest properly. He's a Confederate furry who was kicked out of uh, local furry spaces for being a shithead. Maybe not be proud of that. Maybe that's a guy who, you know, he got kicked out of the furry community. Maybe you should kick him out of the local Second Amendment community as well. That's maybe not someone you should have around. <laughs> yeah, I I think it's interesting to look at some of the semi-right-leaning or just outright conservative members of Second Amendment rally rallies like this because while a lot of them are definitely not comfortable with someone who out and out defines themselves as a Nazi, their ideology is very much prone to a fascist leaning. And you kind of see that with the way that that the Republican majority kind of lets the door open for very fascist things to be said. For example, one of the things that came up in this NBC news piece about gun right activists vowing their fight is just getting started. Uh, one of the things that the conservative gun owners were concerned about was that criminals aren't going to give away their guns. They were feeling that their rights were being stripped away and being given to undocumented people, being given to criminals. And so it very much fits into this paranoid invasion style we have to repel the foreign invaders on in our in our land anti-immigrant kind of view J just as there are a lot of people who very much like the idea of socialism as long as you don't call it that there are a lot of people who like the idea of nazism as long as you don't call it that a lot of people leave leave the door wide open for that kind of thing and that's exactly why you have people like richard spencer who try to dress up Nazi and fascist ideologies in, you know, a nicer set of clothing to disguise the fact that it's the same neo-Nazi white power movement that's been around for decades. But even though that most gun owners are not Nazis, like 90% of, of conservative gun rights activists are not Nazis. If you're a conservative gun owning Second Amendment rights supporter, and you're listening to this, Unless you are actively into like Nazi shit, I probably don't think you're a Nazi. However, white nationalist and Nazi ideology has had an impact and left a cultural mark on the gun-owning community, especially the conservative majority gun-owning community. There's this narrative in uh, Second Amendment circles that coastal liberal elites want to come in and ban all the guns. And when they do that, it's up to the patriotic Americans to rise up in defiance of this tyrannical government power grab and fight back and have a revolution or a second civil war if that's what's needed to protect gun rights. That's a very common refrain in Second Amendment circles. It's also imported directly from the Turner Diaries. The Turner Diaries, the neo-Nazi, essentially science fiction dystopia novel from the late 80s, which was written by a Nazi who was directly tied to George Lincoln Rockwell, the guy who invented anti-Semitism and white power and the American Nazi party. The Turner Diaries, the book that inspired Timothy McVeigh to carry out the Oklahoma City federal building bombing. One of the main plot points is that a liberal government that's uh, too friendly to black people imposes gun control, which the common American patriot, who is obviously white in this book, sees as an unreasonable power grab, and that triggers essentially a revolution against the government and the day of the rope where they hang 
all the race traders and carry all this out. Like the Turner Diaries was published way before any thought of a revolution or a civil war to protect gun rights. That only became a talking point in Second Amendment circles after this book came out and after a bunch of other people read that book and wrote their own shitty knockoff novels of it that take the same premise but dial down the racism from, you know, 11 to like a six. Instead of directly calling out Black people, they just hint at it being immigrants or gays or whatever their particular bugaboo is. This is an idea that is straight out of neo-Nazi ideology, straight out of a neo-Nazi book that has, through cultural osmosis, through gun shows and all that other crap in the 90s and the early 2000s and internet forum culture has become a prevalent idea in Second Amendment circles. And that's if you're a right winger listening to this podcast, I'm sure that's really uncomfortable to hear. And I'm sure it's making you really angry. But it's also true. The neo-Nazi movement is a right wing conservative movement within the broader right-wing conservative movement of the United States, which includes, until very recently, the majority of active gun rights activists. And there is cultural bleed over between those communities. And so if uh, Second Amendment supporters don't want to be associated with neo-Nazis or with neo-Nazi ideology or with neo-Confederate ideology, then gun owners need to take active measures to push people out of their communities. The right needs its own Antifa movement, essentially. I'm not saying that you need to dress up in black and punch the guy at the rally with the Confederate flag, though. I'll buy you a milkshake if you do. But <laughs> but you do need to be able to go up to these people and tell them, you're not welcome here. Get the hell out. And the longer that right-wing gun owners, the longer that they refuse to do that, the easier it is to say that, that you're a Nazi sympathizer or a Nazi yourself. And if you don't want to be called a Nazi, then you need to drive the Nazis out of the room. If you've got one Nazi and nine people sitting at a table with him, you've got 10 Nazis. That's the way this arithmetic works. It's the way it worked in Germany in the 1930s, and it's the way it works in America now until this resurgent white nationalist movement is put to bed. And it's definitely a real movement with real adherence causing real problems. Shortly before the rally on the 20th, there was a uh, series of arrests conducted by the FBI of members of the base. It's a neo-Nazi terrorist group we've mentioned on the podcast before in passing, but uh, it looks like the FBI has been putting some work into infiltrating this group and yielded some fruit and potentially prevented a mass shooting at Monday's rally by arresting uh, three neo-Nazis in Virginia who had constructed an illegal machine gun. Apparently, it was an AR-15 with an auto sear, which allowed it to do automatic fire. Those three men were arrested. They were allegedly planning to go to the rally with the intent to start a race war. It's unclear if they planned to shoot their fellow gun owners in some sort of false flag attack. They discussed simply setting off firecrackers to cause some jumpy gun owner to draw their pistol and start shooting or whatever. It's unclear what their exact plan was, but they were going with the intent to cause bloodshed and mayhem at that event with the intent of starting at least a insurrectionary movement against the state government there. Uh, that's, that's crazy stuff. We know besides that, that their arrest prevented three murders. They, they were on their way to, to murder uh, an anti-fascist couple, and they were also on their way to murder one of their own members who they thought was, uh, you, you said they thought he was an idiot? Yeah, so I want to mention the seventh arrest real quick because it's sort of less less high profile, but they did also arrest a guy in Wisconsin for a series of synagogue vandalism attacks. 
typical Nazi shit. Nothing out of the ordinary, but I'm glad they put the guy away. But yeah, in Georgia, there was a cell of four members of the base, one of whom was an FBI infiltrator. And the cell in Georgia had been planning an attack on a what they described as a, quote, high-ranking Antifa couple. Obviously, Antifa does not have ranks. That's not how this works. But they were <laughs> uh, prominent members of the anti-fascist scene in Georgia. As, and- as, a, as a small note, I mean, a lot of Antifa members are black bloc anarchists, right? I mean... A lot of them, yeah. Rank is not the... <laughs> Rink is not an anti is not a black block thing, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Antifa in Georgia, to my understanding, works a little bit differently. It's a slightly different coalition than the West Coast Antifa groups, which is who you mainly hear about. But yeah, it's not an organization. There's no rank hierarchy or whatever. But these were two anti-fascist activists who actively worked to oppose fascism in Georgia, and they were targeted by these neo-Nazis for assassination. So the uh, Nazis did plan to murder one of their own comrades because they thought he was stupid and incompetent and would blab about their plan. So no honor among thieves and all that shit. But they came up with a very credible and well-thought-out plan to assassinate this couple and their children. So their plan essentially was to shower immediately before to remove any dead skin cells that could leave behind DNA evidence, then dress up in clothing with long sleeves and gloves. And so tuck the gloves under their sleeves and tape them, tuck their pants legs into their boots and tape over them, again, to prevent leaving DNA evidence. They were going to put Vaseline on their eyebrows and eyelashes to avoid, again, DNA evidence. They were planning to go to the house with one person with an AR-15 on guard in case of surprises or in case things went wrong. Then the other two would use a pick gun and or a sledgehammer to break through the front door. And then those two would enter with revolvers, again, to prevent leaving shell casings, and then use those revolvers to murder the couple and their children. And uh, afterwards, they intended to burn the house down and then flee in a stolen vehicle. Fuck. Yeah, it's not a great situation. I would say if there are any high-ranking Antifa members listening to this podcast, I highly advise you to invest in improved security for your home. You know, strengthen up those doors and locks, get some cameras and alarm system, you know, maybe upgrade that shotgun to an AR-15 if these people might be coming wearing body armor. Obviously, the FBI uh, managed to foil this plot because one of the four members of this cell was an FBI agent undercover. You know, uh, generally not a fan of cops, but I have to say this is not bad work on their part. Props to the FBI for this one. Still mad about the whole Fred Hampton thing, but at least they do go after neo-Nazis when they are actively planning murders. Yeah, credit where credit is due, I guess. Definitely reach out to comrades, stay updated on each other's locations you know, definitely keep each other safe. Yeah, if you if you uh, you should get to know your neighbors, you know, it's not a bad thing to report on suspicious activity in your in your neighborhood, as long as it's not, you know, racist property owners reporting on every black person in a hoodie that they see. Obviously, don't set up something like nextdoor.com. But it is a good thing to know your neighbors and to be able to talk to them and be able to tell each other if there's weird activity going on. But You know, these neo-Nazis do present a credible risk. And obviously, even if you aren't Antifa yourself, if you are involved with any socialist movement, some of these white nationalists aren't the brightest bunch. 
they may not necessarily be able to distinguish between an active anti-fascist and someone who just, you know, engages in left-wing politics. So I don't want to be alarmist, but be careful out there. And uh, I'm glad that these two attacks were foiled. Yeah, but these were absolutely incredible threats. And it's exactly the kind of thing that we as an organization are, are concerned about. There have been times that the FBI didn't catch someone before something went down. And our best defense against these kind of attacks are strong communities. So get to know neighbors, get to know, get to know comrades, find people that you can trust with your location, people that you can trust knowing where your family is and all of that. Definitely. Well, we sort of got onto a tangent with this, a very important tangent, but I do think it's worth going back and addressing the Virginia rally a little bit more and some of the reasons why this rally occurred at the scale that it did. I want to say real quick, so just for some context, this was one of the larger rallies that has occurred in America in the last several years in terms of political protests, certainly one of the largest from the right wing outside of a Trump rally. The Virginia militia that was organizing this event claimed that 120,000 people were going to show up. As far as I can tell, those were Facebook RSVPs. So obviously, 120,000 people did not show up. But there were an estimated 15,000 to 20,000 people in attendance, many, many, many of them armed. This was a genuine political moment. This is not something that just appeared out of thin air. This is a large group of people who were brought out by grievances. And obviously, we disagree with a lot of these people on a fundamental political level. But some of the grievances that they raised did, you know, do carry water. Some of the bills going into the Virginia House are questionable. Yeah, I believe there were things like universal background checks being implemented. There was a general assault weapons ban, which might be pretty broad and reach into general semi-automatics, which would be absolutely ridiculous. Beyond that, actually. Really? Beyond that? Yeah. So let's go through uh, some of these bills real quick. There are several bills that the legislature in Virginia is considering right now. So a couple of them, I think, are in fact common sense laws that we do support. And that in discussion between the SRA national organization and the Metro DC chapter, these are bills that I think we can generally support. And the first of those would be laws requiring the safe storage of firearms in households with children, as well as a redefinition of children in this context from 14 or younger to 18 or younger. I think this is a reasonable law. If you are a gun owner and you have a minor in your house, even if they're a teenager, that teenager should not have ready access to that weapon. You should have a safe or a gun locker or at the very least a cable lock to prevent them from getting access to that firearm. So many children die because of playing around with the firearm that they found. You know, people who leave a firearm just in a drawer when they have children in the house are just the most irresponsible people. And yes, yeah. there's many, many law-abiding gun owners, but there are enough gun owners who are completely lackadaisical about this. There does need to be some sort of penalty to sort of encourage them to not be shitheads. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And th that's an essential part of our organization and, and what we're about. We're always about home safety with firearms. We're always about maximum safety with firearms because we want to create and foster responsible gun ownership. We want to encourage competence. We want to encur encourage care and safety in, in all ways. You know, So I could see there being some potential for state abuse of something like that. You know, like, oh, we heard you have guns. So, you know, here's a random search of your house. Like there, 
the the door is open for some harassment, but there need to be standards in place if we're going to reasonably keep our guns in this country, which is something that we must do. Yeah. And the second law that I think the SRA would support is the proposed bill requiring that when a firearm is stolen, the owner must report that theft to the police within 24 hours. So lots of criticisms of the police, but if someone steals your firearm, you need to let someone know immediately. You need to let the police know that that's out there so that there can be some effort put into recovering it because stolen firearms are the largest source of black market firearms used in crime. So I don't think this is super onerous. If someone steals your gun and you find out about it within the next day, call the police. You don't have to call 911, call their office number or whatever, but call them and let them know that someone has stolen your gun so they can do some, hopefully some basic police work to try and recover it before it ends up on the streets. I I think that's reasonable. Yeah, I'd say so. I specifically on this podcast have talked a lot of shit about the police, but I do think that there are some services that the police provide that are important in our current circumstances. There are certain situations that because of the kind of funding and reach that they have, there are some things that they can still do for the community. And I think that they owe it to the community to do those things. Yeah, I think that the structure of policing in America is fundamentally broken and that the whole system needs to be scrapped and replaced, but they do fulfill some vital functions that some sort of organization needs to fulfill. And recovering stolen firearms is one of them. So yeah, I don't think it's it's not trampling on your rights to say that you have to call the cops if your firearm is stolen. That's due diligence. Even if it wasn't the law, you should probably still do it anyway. So I don't think that we would really oppose that as as things are now. Yeah. As for things that we would oppose, well, there are a few laws. So yeah, the assault weapons ban in Virginia. So I disagree with assault weapons bans in general. I don't think that they're effective at preventing mass shootings. I don't think that they are effective at reducing the rate of criminal homicides. I don't think they're effective at doing any of the things that liberal gun control advocates advocate for them to do. Assault weapons bills in general are bad. The one in Virginia is especially bad because of the language of the bill. Uh, The text of it is very, very poorly written. The text of that bill essentially labels all semi-automatic rifles as assault weapons. It labels every weapon with a bayonet lug an assault weapon. If you have an 1898 Mosin-Nagant bolt-action rifle, really more of a spear that happens to shoot bullets, and it has a bayonet lug on it, that's an assault weapon under the text of this bill. (laughs) Wow. If you have a firearm with the ability to accept what the bill determines to be a a, a high-capacity magazine, if it has the ability to accept one of those magazines, then it is, regardless if it's semi-automatic or not, then it considers it an assault weapon. This bill goes in order of magnitude beyond any other assault weapon bill that's been seriously considered in any state legislature and essentially would label more than half of all firearms in current ownership to be assault weapons, which is absurd. Yeah, holy shit. That's scary. So I don't know how much more into detail we need to go with that, but it's a bad bill. Another bill that I think is just kind of dumb off the bat is 
the liberals intend to resurrect Virginia's old one handgun per month bill. This was a bill that was on the books uh, in the 90s when the Republicans got a supermajority in the Virginia state government, uh, repealed that bill. The liberals now want to bring it back, not for any practical purpose. There's no real evidence that it did anything to reduce deaths or prevent crime during the time this bill was enforced, but they want to bring it back as a cultural statement to say, you cannot buy more than one handgun in a month. Okay. So being the Socialist Rifle Association, if we take a materialist analysis of this and from the viewpoint of the working class, uh-huh. I'm a working class person and I can't afford to buy more than one gun per month. Like, yeah. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe if I'm buying, if I'm buying uh, like high points or something. I, I imagine this will ruin some people's Christmases. You know, yeah. if they're like, every child in my household will get a nine mil this, oh, <laughs> this and Christmas. And it's not apparent. It's not purchases. It's transfers. So, oh, okay. so you also can't receive them as a gift or, you know, from a family member or in a trade or anything like that either. Oh, wow. But this is the sort of thing that doesn't really come up that often. It's not something that's going to be happening every month that you're going to be buying multiple firearms unless you're some bougie ass collector who has the capacity to do this, but it is going to be like a hassle and an inconvenience to people. And it, what the hell does it do to prevent crime? Yeah, that, but, yeah, that, that's, that's ridiculous. That's not going, that's not going to do anything. And this is something that really annoys me is a uh, gun control as a cultural statement. Uh, there was a Jacobin article recently, which was interesting to me because Although they didn't mention the SRA specifically, they took a lot of the arguments that the SRA and other, you know, sort of armed left activists, they took a lot of the arguments that we've been making the last several years and acknowledged those arguments and then tried to construct an argument for gun control that still addresses the criticisms that are raised. And that Jacobin writer still wanted assault weapons bans, fully acknowledging that they don't do anything to prevent crime, to prevent criminal homicide, to prevent mass shootings, still thought that assault weapons could be banned should be banned purely as a cultural statement. That's the type of thing that right-wingers are justifiably pissed off about because you're literally just saying, let's pass this law as a middle finger to these people that we don't like. What is that? That's not uh, legislating for the benefit of the people. That's not a socialist way of government where you're just deliberately flipping the bird to a cultural block that you don't like. If you're going to be passing gun control, then you need to be passing gun control based on the evidence that will actually have an effect at reducing gun violence while not having too much of an impact on people's Second Amendment rights. You have to find that balance. You shouldn't just be passing legislation just to say, fuck you. Yeah. Centrists love their moral high ground. And That's social for sure. Democrats, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Which, it's so fucked. Fuck this country that social Democrats are are still on the left here. Yeah. Yeah. So- one handgun per month bill, probably not a huge issue realistically for a lot of uh, working class gun owners, but still not a useful bill. Which brings us to the next bill, the uh, Extreme Risk Protection Act, or the so-called Red Flag Law. Now, these have been proposed in several jurisdictions recently, and I believe one has actually passed in California. So the idea behind an extreme risk protection order is if you have someone who you believe to be an imminent threat to themselves or others. If this is a person who has openly talked about uh, shooting themselves 
or who you have credible reason to believe may murder their spouse or their lover in a fit of rage, or that you believe may go on a, uh, and conduct a mass shooting, you can report that person to the police and the police can come with only a very brief clearance by a judge and take all of that person's firearms away to prevent them from committing a shooting. So this is a sticky one because yes, if someone is like imminently about to commit a mass shooting or something or to commit you know domestic violence, then yes, that person should not have access to their guns. However, the issue around these laws is the lack of due process. Pretty much you make a brief appeal to a judge or oftentimes simply someone who suspects this person may be a danger to someone can report it to the police, provide a, a statement, and then the police can take that statement to a judge and go and seize that person's weapons. The issue is that because of a lack of due process uh, and how quickly these laws uh, can be put into effect against somebody, it is very possible, very easy for these to be abused. In fact, there has been talk on uh, right-wing forums, including the 4chan's poll board, discussing that if extreme risk protection orders go into effect, that they should be used to disarm so-called Antifa or leftists or whoever poll deems to be a threat, which is anyone who's not white, pretty much. So it's difficult because this is a law that has good intentions, that is intended for situations where a person genuinely should not have access to weapons, but also because it is meant to take effect so quickly, the bar for evidence to take these weapons is relatively low, so it is very easy for this to be abused. Don't forget the conservatives have historically supported gun control as long as it was kept out of the hands of Black Panthers or whoever else they feel shouldn't be armed against them. Exactly. And if a police officer comes to a judge in the South and says, oh, yes, this person, you know, this black person or this Mexican person has an assault rifle and, you know, and he said mean things about conservatives, I think he might be, you know, committing a shooting. Yeah, that judge, uh, depending on how racist the judge is, they might consider that to be valid evidence because it's up to the judge's discretion and the judicial system in America. Uh, there are a lot of very bad, very bad judges. Um, elected judges in conservative areas in particular are very bad. There's also a pipeline of conservative and racist lawyers into the judiciary through various conservative institutions. It's a problem. Whereas if it's, you know, some white guy who has an otherwise clean record because he's friends with the cops or whatever, and his spouse files a protective order against him, and that goes to that same judge or that same kind of judge, there's maybe a bit lower odds that they'll actually consider a woman's statements to be uh, convincing. Right. The, the potential to be used against vulnerable people versus it being used against people who are actually dangerous because of how far right we know that some some judges and some police departments lean it's it's pretty astronomical and i think is probably the best reason why we say fuck that bill yeah like this bill is attempting to address a very real problem it is something that needs to be addressed but the mechanism by which these red flag laws act is deeply flawed and has a lot of potential to do harm so for that reason uh, we oppose this bill and that brings us to the last one we want to address uh, the universal background check bill so the idea behind a universal background check makes a lot of sense on the surface. Uh, we don't want violent criminals to have guns, right? I mean, if someone is committed murder or like a violent act of murder or armed burglary or robbed a bank or something, if, or even a convenience store, if they've committed some violent crime, then it's probably reasonable to not let that person own guns if there's a possibility that they may go out and commit a similar crime uh, after they're released from prison. 
I think that's reasonable. The issue is, again, the mechanism by which this reasonable concern is addressed is deeply flawed. So for starters, background checks will only pick up things that have been entered into the legal system, into legal records. So they'll pick up you know, felony arrests, they'll pick up restraining orders, or they'll pick up court orders saying that someone can't own a weapon. They'll pick up uh, medical records or military discharge papers. They'll pick up that sort of thing to say this person should not own a firearm. But a lot of the time, this sort of thing doesn't get into the background check system. A lot of uh, police departments and a lot of local court systems do not properly feed arrest records and other data into the national background check system. So a lot of people are just missed entirely. There was a shooter in Texas, um, a mass shooter, who was dishonorably discharged from the Air Force, which is the equivalent of a felony and does bar you from owning a firearm. However, the Air Force did not report that discharge into the national background check system. And so this person was able to go out and purchase a firearm anyway, simply because the data wasn't there. Additionally, you have, again, that issue of the racial bias and the class bias within our so-called justice system, where uh, you have certain communities, especially the African-American community, Black community, which are heavily over-policed, where you have a lot of people who are locked up for low-level drug offenses, And given felonies on their records, this could be just a guy who's just a totally normal person just sitting around at home smoking pot. Old white lady next door calls the cops on him because she smells the smoke. That that guy gets busted, gets sent to jail for smoking marijuana, primarily because of his skin color or because he's in a poor neighborhood or whatever shit. And also police have a lot of discretion and whether or not they will enforce the law on somebody. And so... There are a lot of people, a lot of white people who just get away with shit that would otherwise be a major crime that they could receive a felony for. And they just get away with that shit anyway, even if they are a violent person, even if they are a person who probably shouldn't own a firearm, if they're not arrested for it, if they're not charged for it because the cops feel sympathetic towards them, then that doesn't end up in the background check system. And this person still goes around owning firearms. Especially when you consider that so many mass shooters have had clean records you know they it's not like they had like a long criminal record and there were all these you know warning signs that the justice system would have would have caught or anything like that the potential for this kind of thing again just like the bill we talked about before the potential to be used against people who already have more than enough of their rights stripped away anyway is absurd and we can't let bills like that fly again it's an issue where it's a good intention there is some good logic there Someone who's been arrested and charged for armed burglary, when they got out of jail, they probably shouldn't own a firearm. But until the racial inequities within our justice system are addressed, background check laws will have a substantial racial and class impact against minority communities and against poor communities who are charged with crimes at a far greater rate than wealthy and white communities. Yeah, exactly. And it's also an issue in that the background check proposals that are usually implemented are often seen as a backdoor method of implementing firearms registration. If there is a background check record that is retained by the state every time a firearm is sold, even if it's a private sale between two individuals, if you force that type of sale to occur at a gun store, at a federal firearms licensed dealer with a background check and you've essentially forced every transaction to go through a legal process with a background check, the concern that many, especially right-wing gun owners have is that this is essentially allowing a backdoor way of creating a list of who owns firearms because you have a list 
of all the times a firearm has been sold, which means that you have a list of all the firearms that a given person owns. So it's sort of a backdoor registration system. And many universal background check bills include explicit registration systems. That's scary stuff regardless of where you're at on the political spectrum. Exactly. Whether you see it as a backdoor way of you know, getting a list of guns to confiscate, which is the right-wing fear, or whether you consider that this could be a way to disarm political activists. Or like, if I go out to a protest against police misconduct in my community, and the police look at my record and see what firearms that I own based on, you know, state registration records, which, because we're in California, they already know, because we do have gun registration, that essentially allows them to say that, oh, this person is a higher risk. So if we come up with a reason for why we should go after this person, if we come up with some pretense for why we should raid them because they've got pot or some shit, if they have a record that this person owns a firearm, that gives them a justification to come in with the SWAT team and the armored vehicle and kick your door in in the middle of the night. And, oh no, I thought he was going for a gun. Blam. Again, there's like a justifiable reason for wanting to do something about this. There is a good intention, but the actual method of universal background checks and the background check system as a whole is deeply flawed. Now, there is an alternative that addresses some of the issues uh, that does address the issues with like it being a backdoor to registration. So an alternative way of doing a background check system is what's called open NICs. NICS, N-I-C-S, is the name of the background check system that the ATF uses. That, that's the sort of uh, database of records that are searched when a gun store does a background check. What you can do is you can implement open NICS where essentially anyone can go to a government website, or if you want it to be a bit more strict, you can say, go to a gun shop or go to a post office or go someplace official and run a background check on yourself and receive a certificate that's good for seven days or 10 days saying that you passed a background check within this time frame. And you can then present that certificate and it can have a barcode or whatever that someone can scan with their phone or whatever crap so that someone can scan your certificate to verify that yes, you have passed a background check without requiring a separate background check for every transaction, without requiring the transaction to occur at a gun store, without requiring the state to know exactly which firearms were sold or bought. You can still say that if you do this sort of private transaction, you do need to have evidence that someone has uh, done a background check, that this person doesn't have a criminal record. But it doesn't allow for this sort of backdoor registration system if you can just have a certificate that temporarily allows you to purchase a firearm privately. I think that's a much better way of doing it. It's probably a much cheaper and easier way of doing it, especially for the citizens that actually do it. If you're going to be selling or buying more than one firearm in a month, handguns or not, <laughs> um, you know, because most of these gun shops, they'll charge you know, $25 or $35 or $50 to run your background check. Removing that burden from the equation definitely helps out poor communities. It definitely helps out. It's it's just a better way of doing this sort of thing than having a mandated background check at an FFL for every individual transaction, which is hugely problematic. And obviously, we also need to address, like we were talking about, we need to address the racial and class disparities in our justice system so that background checks actually represent these sort of check that people want them to represent. Exactly. Or we can't buy into these moral high ground kind of solutions where it's it's meant to appease people who want something done about gun violence, who, but who don't really understand what the causes of it are. You know, we can't buy into these cheap solutions that only really look good on the surface, but leave huge potential for state abuse. 
Definitely. If you want to have common sense gun control, then you need to apply common sense to your own positions and consider the ways that these laws could go wrong or could have unintended consequences. And liberals just aren't interested in doing that because for most of them, it's not really how do we make our society better. It's a cultural statement of we don't like this thing. We don't like the people who like this thing and we want them to go away. And we just want to make life difficult for them until it does. And that's not the way that you need to approach politics, especially as a socialist, especially if you uh, claim to represent the working class, you need to understand the working class concerns and you need to be able to differentiate when they are valid concerns versus when they are not valid concerns. And many of the right wing gun nuts concerns are racist and reactionary and shitty. But when it comes to the Second Amendment, they do have good points occasionally and occasionally they don't have good points. And that's why we are here. Yeah, they're right to be angry about some things, but the, as always, they're angry at the wrong people. They're not angry at their bosses. They're not angry at capitalists. They're angry at vulnerable people. They're angry at minorities. They're angry at people of color. They're angry at immigrants. They're angry at women, at people in in the in the queer community. The anger is extremely is extremely misdirected. What they really need is just to be better informed about which side they're actually on. What I'm saying is conservative gun owners are fucking scabs and they should be ashamed of it. <laughs> with that said, we have a round table with some Jewish comrades discussing anti-Semitism and how the left can combat it, uh, both internally and externally. See you after the break. Socialist Rifle Association, and I'm joined by Noah Berlatsky and Johnny Stoffels. You guys like to say hi? Hi. Hi. Today, we're going to talk about a uh, very fun, very lighthearted subject, and that is anti-Semitism, kind of across the board, on the left, and you know how we can talk about it, how we can confront it, and uh, how people can talk about it and, and work against it as allies. So yeah, uh, to get started, uh, Noah and Johnny, um, maybe not everyone knows uh, a lot about you two. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves? Noah, what do you do? What kind of background do you have? Sure. Uh, my name is Noah Berlatsky. I'm in Berlat on Twitter, and I'm, I'm a writer, mostly about pop culture things, but also on, uh, also on politics. I wrote a recent piece for NBC Think about how the right-wing attacks on Bernie Sanders are anti-Semitic. That's kind of one of the most recent things I've written that touches on these issues. Very cool. Uh, Johnny? Uh, I am a DSA member um, and a Jewish community organizer and uh, do a lot of lefty stuff, 
I guess, on the internet sometimes. <laughs> Very cool. I mean, we're all we're all pretty much just Jewish community organizers. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us have to kind of confront and talk about the uh, amount of just bad faith discussions of Bernie Sanders' uh, Jewishness or or lack thereof. I know there was uh, not terribly long ago a discussion of. Bernie Sanders, not really Jewish, because for a while he identified as as Polish, and that's not a kind of Jew, which, <laughs> yeah, the famously not Jewish Poles. Okay. <laughs> um, Today we, we have a fresh new take where some liberal Zionist person, um, who I shall not name uh, on Twitter, was talking about how Jews who intermarry are bad and um, not yeah. real Jews uh, attacking Max Berger with If Not Now because like in an interfaith relationship and ate him. So <laughs> the, the internalized anti-Semitism, I guess, <laughs> from the liberal Zionists. That was just fun. Just happened today. So, <laughs> Well, and, and to talk a little bit about my own background, you know, I, I grew up in deepest, darkest in the diaspora. There are probably people in that segment of Zionist, even hyper-Zionist, air quotes, liberal J Twitter, who would say that even though I am a matrilineal Jew, such as that matters, my my father is from, from Nowata, Oklahoma. So how, how Jewish am I really? Well, I was born in Fort Worth, ooh. And I think that as as Bernie Sanders has done better or refused to fail in his campaign <laughs> uh hasn't had the good graces to uh step aside for a real jew like uh pete Buttigieg. <laughs> a lot of us are gonna have to kind of confront the fact that people who we don't tend to associate with just blunt brutal anti-semitism where it's just pure slurs or achan stuff basically are gonna start saying things that are attacking Jewish identity. And, and you know, I, I think what's what's difficult about that, what makes it kind of frustratingly nuanced is it's one thing when you're dealing with someone who is is using a meme, who is using words that we classically associate with anti-Semitism, but when it is someone who is is saying something that, you know, you can go, oh, hey, that's, that's, clearly, that's clearly anti-Semitic. But when it's coming from someone who is is jewish or who is aesthetically like that should be an ally it especially makes non-jews and and some jews pretty itchy about identifying that and attacking it as anti-semitism and uh, that's definitely something that i think is, is important about having these kind of conversations while we're why we're here today i think that there's it's like anything you know i mean like there's just like there's racism and sexism on the left and you have to kind of you know, be careful and think about them and, you know, sort of be open to people sort of like criticizing them. I think it's the same with, you know, anti-Semitism that people aren't always alert to sort of more subtler ways that it can work and can be defensive when you talk about it. I mean, I think that this can be a problem with um, critiques of capitalism, which... You know, I mean, there's a long history of those being intertwined with kind of anti-Semitic ideas and anti-Semitic imagery. Um, I saw people talking the other day about, you know, the octopus, like using the octopus as the symbol of capitalism. But it's also that kind of imagery 
that has often been associated with anti-Semitism. You have to be really careful to use that. I think I saw somebody pointing out that there was a DSA image that was using the octopus and pointing out that maybe that wasn't the best way to go. And they actually changed it, I think, pretty quickly and without, you know, a lot of fuss, which is great, but it doesn't always work that way. I mean, sometimes when you say this critique of capitalism seems like it's using anti-Semitic imagery, you might want to think about that. The response you get is not always super positive in my experience. And, you know, I mean, I think people need to realize that you don't necessarily need to agree every time, right? I mean, obviously, Jewish people disagree, too, all the time about Oh, what is and isn't anti-Semitism. But, you know, I mean, like, the, the trick is not to then say, like, you don't want to go nuclear on them, even if you disagree. Just like, you know, you might disagree with somebody about talking about sexism or racism, but if somebody who has some lived experience says something, the response should not be to try to, you know, delegitimize them or sort of like, you know, make them out to be an enemy of the movement. And I think like if people keep that in mind, like things can go pretty well, but it isn't always the case that people keep that in mind. Going back to the DSA octopus debacle, first of all, like as far as ways that like people can be allies. So even if you disagree or agree with that being anti-Semitic, which I think it was a little too close because it was it was talking about landlords and there's a whole bunch of anti-Semitic stuff around like Jewish landlords that's kind of based in these very liberal, individualistic, like not material understandings of like conflict in different classes. But one thing that made I really appreciated was that like, despite like there's still being debate going on after that and a lot of the debate being from like tankies and stuff, they just took it down without like question. And like, then we could have a dialogue about whether or not like that was okay. I, I thought it was really funny. I saw someone share an article where they used an octopus again. It wasn't on like Jacobin or anything. It was just on a, another like regional socialist newspaper that DSA was the octopus and it was like holding roses because it was, it was talking about like organizing for spreading socialism. The thing with the octopus is that it is a kind of neutral symbol for something that's organized and has multiple branches but like in the context of like landlords it does get very close into the whole jews and crown heights are buying up everything and not renting to people who aren't which like there is some truth to that but it's also a more than just one person's bad one person's good kind of situation also like fuck landlords but like there's more going on there than just uh like these people even though they have wealth, aren't necessarily the most privileged people in America. Like, um, like they still face anti-Semitism, and like their position is the reason why like other Hasidic Jews who are not landlords probably will end up getting attacked by a minority group that will end up getting like weaponized by moderate Jews for why the left has so much anti-Semitism. I, th I think there's a lot to that in that like um, this this is maybe a weird example, but uh, for instance to harken back to an area of history that I, I spent a lot of time studying uh, a while back. This is a very weird pull, but go with me for a second. The 1896 election, back when a very progressive, very populist candidate, um, I'm going to get his first name wrong, I want to say William Bryan? I know his last name was Bryan, was running on, you know, breaking up large corporations, running against the massive inequality in America at the time. You know, a lot of the problems we have now. And the moneyed interests of America, you know, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the J.P. Morgan types, 
paid for the campaign of uh, McKinley to basically keep their companies together. And when you talk about that with certain people, they go, yeah, that's right. There's a cabal of wealthy people who have throughout American history, throughout the existence of corporatism in America, have shaped America's history and has shaped the form of capitalism. That's right. Also Jews. And so, well, 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 hold on. Hang on. No, no. None of those guys were Jews. In fact, a lot of them hated Jews. Well, hold on there. You're, you're running away with it there. And it makes it really difficult to kind of have a discussion of the critical flaws and structure of American society when there's this underlying kind of critical... I guess, flaw in how a lot of people view the, the structure of society, of race, of ethnicity, of, of culture, of religion, and whatever, because what has driven, you know, I, and I'm certainly not a, a, oh, hey, let's abandon identity politics or whatever, but, but a lot of people work from this framework of identity politics that, like, includes oppressed people as somehow oppressors. Just because you have a little more money than some other people doesn't mean that you are on par with the people who have had the power for a century and a half, 200 years, 300 years to crush into grinding poverty and in some cases literal slavery and genocide huge swaths of people on this continent. That's absolutely bonkers. And when you try to dissect that, those people lump in victims of oppression. It, it makes it very difficult to have those conversations. And in some cases... It makes it dangerous to have those conversations. Yeah, and I would I would say that anti-Semitism, you know, like any kind of bigotry can kind of grow. And, you know, sometimes it's worse and sometimes it's better in terms of how people are treated and how close it is to the surface. You know, and I think that with Trump, a lot of those have gotten worse and anti-Semitism certainly has. And one of the ways that it's gotten worse is that for a while, people on the right were interested in suppressing anti-Semitism too, to a certain extent. And I think that gave Jewish people kind of more room to maneuver than some other marginalized groups. One of the signs of the increase of anti-Semitism on the right is this willingness to kind of use it for purely partisan purposes, even though like People have to know, right, that attacking Bernie Sanders is anti-Semitic doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, I mean, it's like it's, it's a way to sort of target left Jews. Corbyn's a bit more complicated, but I mean, you know, there was a lot of bad faith right attacks there, too. And the thing about that is that these sort of like bad faith, really anti-Semitic uses of anti-Semitism as like a partisan attack also makes anti-Semitism kind of more acceptable on the left in some ways. Because, you know, people start to feel like any mention of anti-Semitism is in bad faith and anti-leftist. So if you're on the left and you say, for example, I had some problems with the way Corbyn said some things, people are very aggressive in policing that. And I had a thing online where I said, you know, they live has some anti-Semitic tropes. And people were not only like, this is a stupid thing to say. But like you're just like the people who attack Corbyn was something that I heard. And if you're on the left, yeah, I mean, it just makes left spaces really difficult for Jewish people if you're not allowed to talk about Jewish issues without being lumped in with right wingers. 
first of all, like there's there's one side of it where people don't know anything about Jewish tropes. So they're like, what do you mean my jokes about reptilian shape-shifting aliens is anti-Semitic? I, I think that's part of it. I definitely also see like the reverse is true where people in bad faith will read in tropes. Like I mentioned that some journalist who also I will not name because I don't want to give him attention has received money from like right wing Zionist organizations to like say hateful things on the Internet to people. And I like said that I was like, hey, this is a factual thing. And somebody was like, uh, you're uh, reciting anti-Semitic tropes. And I'm like, first of all, Jewish, very aware <laughs> of uh, anti-Semitic tropes. But like, I think a lot of it has to come down to finding a healthy balance of like people being vigilant about these things, but also having the ability to be like, no, this person isn't actually like being an anti-Semite because they accidentally invoked something that was resembling a trope. Whenever it's like, no, it is true that like there are certain interest groups that have a lot of money for like Zionist uh, interests. Like that's just it. That's a thing. You can't really deny it. Um going back to like Alan Omar and how constantly was just dealing with people who I like relatively like saying how she was invoking a ton of different tropes whenever that just like wasn't about what was going on like it sort of the first one and then after that there never was another thing that was like even kind of problematic but they would just go looking for tropes they would go looking for uh the littlest thing they could find to, to spin in a way and in using tropes to defend like actual bad ag- actions that like right-wing Jews often do. But, right, I, but also, you know, I mean, like if it was just right-wing Jews, kind of nobody would care. Cause I mean, like, you know, there aren't enough, like that group is not really like where the power center is. The power center is the evangelical Christians. Yeah. I mean, like, they're the ones who, like, people really care about. And, like, Donald Trump is really, much of his policies are directed at them. And they really kind of figure themselves as the real Jews, right? They're the ones who really care about Israel. They're the ones who really know what being Jewish means. And again, this is pretty similar to, like, the way other bigotries operate, too, right? I mean, white people are always weighing in on like who's really black as just one example like this is one of the ways bigotry operates is that the people who are not the marginalized group in question have more say in like how those groups are defined and what's supposed to be acceptable behavior you know i mean with rudy giuliani saying you know oh he's more of a real jew than george soros that's like scary shit in part because if non-jews have the right to define what jewish oppression is you know, they can shoot us and then it'd be like, well, that doesn't count. Right. And that's actually, I mean, that actually happened with Soros conspiracy theories. I mean, the Pittsburgh shooter, that's what he was listening to. That's why he went out and like, you know, shot people. So that kind of erosion of like being able to speak for yourself is pretty scary. And is been, you know, one big change in the last few years is that there's less and less of a pretense that they actually care what even right-wing Jews say, you know, I mean, like the people who are like going out to speak for Jews are like Megan McCain, right? <laughs> you know, like oh Giuliani, like, you know, like they're not people who are like at risk in any way, but they feel empowered to like say what's anti-Semitism and what isn't. Well, and I, and I do think that's something that people, especially outside of, of the Jewish community, if you're you know, a well-intentioned, even leftist-leaning, just a well-intentioned kind of left-curious liberal or an actual leftist Gentile, and you want to help out. I think one of the most important things you need to keep in mind 
is the erasure of who is and is not a valid Jew or just a Jew in general. And it's a problem that certain bad faith Jews contribute to. And it's it's something that, that a lot of right-wing people like your Meghan McCain's, your Rudy Giuliani's, your Donald Trump <laughs> will contribute to. Um, and I think it's important to remember that, you know, the final stage of colonization, of colonialism, is to turn members of that group into agents of colonialism, kind of weaponizing them against themselves. And the out-group being able to say, uh, da, 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 actually, you're not part of the culture. You're not real members of this because you don't walk our external uber culture political line ergo you're not part of the culture that's how you destroy a culture and its people that's how you erase it from history and you know to a large degree what the republican party is doing that's to a large degree what the it's worth noting significant minority of right-wing not just zionist but hardcore nationalist jews do when they say that leftist Jews aren't real Jews, or that black Jews, or that Hispanic Jews, or, or Asian Jews aren't real Jews, that you have to be the most Ashkenazocentric uh, Zionist Jew possible to count. And if you're a Gentile, and you want to be helpful, you want to be a good ally to your Jewish friends in the coalition that we have here, don't cotton to that. If you see Rudy Giuliani saying that he's somehow more a Jew, you just say, hey, that's, that's anti-Semitism. That's wrong. You accept that converts are Jews. You recognize that the obsession with hardcore matrilinealism isn't a thing. It's not valid. I, I think that's something that we have to reject as this is a, this is a, little, a little spicy, but it's some blood and soil stuff. Yeah. I think that one of the things that really does service to this is a lot of centrist liberal Zionists. They go on not really realizing that they're taking on a lot of these right-wing talking points because like, they publicly identify as progressive Zionists who are LGBT-friendly and Mizrahi, so they can't be racist. And they weaponize their individualist progressivism to be like, these leftists who all worship at the feet of Stalin are bad because um, they hate Israel and hating Israel is anti-Semitism. And that leads on to like other people who just aren't well-versed or repeating those lines. If it was just right-wing Jews saying a lot of these things, they wouldn't be as hurtful as people who are parading around as being like liberal and actually like well accepted in their community going around and saying you're not Jewish because you don't like Israel and you don't keep Shabbat and you don't keep kosher and all of these things that I think like really gives some kind of credence to these things. I think that's a little bit more harmful for the image of the left, just because you occasionally get some people who like make some weird jokes about like throwing Trotsky in an oven, like real actual case of very obvious and blatant anti-Semitism on the left. But like for every one of those, you have 15 people who probably would fall into a more like liberal Democrat political position going around and uh, giving these like really bad faith understandings of what Jewish identity is and looks like, uh, especially like attacking people like, oh, you're a convert, so you're not really Jewish, even though half their friends probably fall into that demographic. 
like weaponizing Jewish identity in like all of these really ugly and gross ways. And I think for Jews, I think one of the, the things that we need to do is have more discussion about what Jewish identity looks like. And as much as there is anti-Semitism on the left, which I think comes from a place of ignorance, I think there's a lot of stuff that parades itself as being on the left that isn't like actually like by any means anti-capitalist. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, one kind of anti-Semitism you do get on the left is that people sort of feel like any Jewish person needs to answer for Israel, right? So there's this kind of, you know, if you talk about Israel or if you don't talk about Israel, you know, you'll sometimes get the comments, well, you know, your people are doing X, Y, Z. And I'm like, I'm not Israeli. I, I don't approve of most of the things their government does. But there's this people who claim to be speaking for, you know, Palestinian rights, feel that that kind of gives them the authority to basically, you know, like challenge any Jewish person who speaks with what the Israeli government is doing. And that's obviously, it's not you. And I mean, that's directly the idea that Jews are sort of collectively responsible for anything one Jewish person does or a particular government does. So that's something on the left that people should be wary of. And, you know, ideally, it wouldn't fall to Jewish people to point out that you shouldn't do that, right? I mean, if you want to be allies. And the other thing to be somewhat concerned about is that there's really active efforts by people who are fascists or Nazis to try to make inroads in left communities. You know, people like Tucker Carlson's burbling out like semi-nonsensical kind of left talking points. I mean, you see a lot of it online, too, you know, I mean, like somebody's saying, you know, oh, we need to destroy the billionaires. And you go on their profile and they're all about how George Soros is awful or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, the most dangerous anti-Semitism is really on the right because, like, they're actually shooting people. So, yeah, that's frightening. But the worry about anti-Semitism on the left is that the left communities are where marginalized people go for protection. And if they're anti-Semitic, kind of have nowhere to go. So that's sort of the worry about that. And I think that's that's actually, I think, a very good point, is that like both on the giving and the receiving side of that kind of attack, if it's someone who you marginally agree with, it's pretty easy to say, hey, we don't do that here. Hey, you've, you've either because you may genuinely believe that or because we live in a society in which, you know, anti-Semitism is so permeated throughout it that you may have just internalized it. You may just be spouting some horrible bile that you picked up somewhere. You may not be quite hearing what you're saying, basically. And if you have repeated, you're going to go, oh, oh, my gosh, that's and, you know, this is hokey but i mean i've done that to someone being like hey are you hearing the like horrible thing that you're saying and then someone will go like oh man that's just racism oh no because this is america and america has some gross stuff in it you know leftism needs to be a place where like you say we protect the people who come here for shelter for protection and there is that scary thought that yeah one day certain people are going to go it would sure be easier if we allied with the other people who want to tear down the system, but also ignore all the identity politics stuff and who, you know, while while they're tearing down the system, also get rid of the people who they think of as lesser. Because, man, we get rid of the billionaires along the way. And we can't let those people in our house. We cannot give up our protection of the oppressed. And that is an everyday task. That means that, you know, we've got to actively 
police our space. We've got to keep our house clean. And to kind of call it what it is, that means no Nazbol stuff. <laughs> that means, yeah, none of that national conservatism as they tried rebranding it. I Time means nothing anymore. I feel like that was last year. It could have been 10 years ago. <laughs> um, I can't remember when they had that little convention because, yeah. But yeah, like I, I think that's a, a very, very good point that it sometimes is people just deciding to go mask off on their bigotry. And it, it can be from people who are genuine leftists, but who just happen to be bigots. Or it can be from people who, you know, are, are coming from the right and deciding that populism is a better way to get their extreme right wing stuff done. But our, our work always has to be a unifying protection of the oppressed. I, absolutely. I think like a lot of the times when we're talking to like other leftists in our community, I, I think we also need to remember like a lot of people are probably just like society is just this way. People have bad ideas about Jews probably ingrained in them from potentially since they're a child. And there needs to be like some room for like being patient with deprogramming people if we're really sincere about wanting to create actual like organized movements. I don't know. I personally find there's some sense of responsibility for like educating people on anti-Semitism before the bad stuff comes out. I don't think that's everybody's job, but I, I definitely like know for me that it helps a lot to to remember everyone's not like out to kill all the Jews, a lot of the anti-Semitism is not super harmful. There is a lot of bad stuff out there, but like a lot of the anti-Semitism on the left typically turns out and what I would consider is, oh, we're only having organizing meetings on Friday night and Saturday or on a Jewish holiday. And we schedule it without checking the calendar for like religious holidays. And like, there's a lot of that from organizing on the left that I've like personally experienced. And a lot of that like comes from people just not having any kind of awareness as I live in a majority Catholic town. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that calling in rather than calling out is, is always a good way to go in left communities. I mean, it's also difficult, though, because, you know, accusations of anti-Semitism are seen as so inflammatory or as so dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in part because of again, the way they've kind of been weaponized against um, many left people, I mean, especially black people, you know, accusations of anti-Semitism are kind of often used by the right as a way to sort of delegitimize this people. And so you get the situation where it's difficult to sort of bring them up without it feeling like some sort of, you know, nuclear strike, which puts Jewish people in a difficult position, too, because then you're probably especially Jews of color, but, you know, all Jewish people to some extent, because you're how do you how do you bring it up without it being seen as an attack? I mean, there's a problem with, you know, other kind of bigotries, too. I mean, right. When women say this is sexist or when black people say this is racist, it's often treated as the accusation is worse than the behavior itself. Mm -hmm. And that just that makes it very difficult to talk about it and get it to a better place. I mean, you know, often it means that the person who says this is a problem is seen as the one sort of like spreading disunity. And the person who has to be, I don't know, like this happened to me. I was, I got dogpiled for like four days, just hundreds of tweets, not email, you know, about how dare you criticize this B science fiction film, which, you know, when I had done it, I had not seen it as particularly inflammatory, right? I wasn't yeah, saying anyone right. is evil. I'm just saying, you know, there are these tropes in this film and you might want to think about that. And, you know, like days of attacks and... And I think any Jewish person who saw that is going to be very leery of bringing that sort of thing up 
And, you know, ideally it shouldn't be this kind of huge thing in left communities to sort of say, this struck me as anti-Semitic. That should be, people should sort of say, yes, you know, anti-Semitism is sort of, is pretty prevalent and we're all likely to partake in it. And, you know, we can listen to this sort of critique and then, you know, sort of like move on with our lives and maybe try to do better, right? But when it's sort of framed as this like attack on the movement, it's becomes really difficult to try to get people to be better. And just to like, you know, I'm a Jewish person. I like talking about Jewish issues in pop culture. It's like one of the things I think about. And like, do I dare talk about this? And you don't necessarily want to be in a position where like Jewish people are, you know, nervous about talking about Jewish issues unless they get swarmed. Well, I remember going back to the octopus, like with a Jewish worker getting dogpiled by a bunch of Nazbuls. It it is really hard. And as you mentioned earlier, like there's a lot of accusations of anti-Semitism that are thrown around in bad faith. And um, I think like with Jeremy Corbyn, where it's like, there's some stuff which isn't great, but was overemphasized by a bunch of people who were like pro-Tory. And I think... People need to like learn how to balance how they uh, respond to accusations of anti-Semitism, where it's, in Corbyn's case, overemphasized. In Bernie's case, it was ridiculous. But figuring out a way to balance the homogenous idea of what the left is and just getting people to be intentional about, like, is this going to be something that like we spread around and like attack, or is this something that we need to actually listen to? And I think most of the time, people who aren't Jewish should probably just take a seat until like somebody can properly educate them rather than hit the quote retweet and be like, I hope you die. Yeah. <laughs> and I will admit, like, I mean, I this is it's a skill that I've had to learn and it's one that still getting better at. It's a, it's a hard thing to do is part of being on the left and just being not terrible at it is developing a sense of how to be part of a community and and even being a voice in that community engaging with that community but you don't have to like lead conversations in that community you don't have to tell members of the community well hey here's my educated master class brilliant opinion and hot take that you have to listen to and if you don't you're dumb and wrong Sorry, folks, you're around a bunch of Jews who've lived a Jewish life and who might know more about the Jewish experience than you. And it's okay if you don't know what is and is not, you know, immediately anti-Semitic. It's all right. It's fine. You don't have to feel bad about that. And I think, you know, one of the things that people maybe need to develop a sense for is that when there is an accusation of something, unless it, you know, comes out in like terrible bad faith of like, you know, hey, this this thing is the most brutal awful vitriolic anti-semitism that's ever existed and it's superficially obviously very benign not a big deal you don't need to go nuclear on it you you know be willing to have that discussion and if you don't have like a very clear nuanced take on it yeah let it go it's fine you don't need to engage in like the twitter thing on it and and i know like that's pretty rich coming from me i know (laughs) and like you said earlier johnny like there's a time and a place for for anger in the face of the hegemony. Sometimes it's useful. Sometimes you need to not be idle. Ataraxy is bad. But other times, you know, it's the conditions in which we exist. It's the world in which we, which we do live. We do live in a society, unfortunately. <laughs> but you can't be angry every minute of every day. You can't be angry at every reminder 
of the systems in which we operate. And sometimes you have to respond with a measure of patience, a measure of calm. And that's just how it's going to have to be. And you're going to have to be willing to just talk it out with people. And if you disagree with someone's opinion about something, especially if that is opinion is, as a Jew, I feel this thing says this thing about my group, or as a, as a black person, as a Native American, as a as whatever. Maybe don't have a knee-jerk reaction of telling that person to shut up, or, or hey, saying something bigoted to them. <laughs> like, um, and if you see someone doing that, Tell them, hey, we don't do that here. That's not what we do. Like, recognize that person is doing something more harmful to our movement than the person who's making the criticism. That division is more harmful than that initial criticism, I feel. In general, leftists need to, I think, be less focused on themselves as individual people. If we're going to build any kind of like significant leftist movement in America, uh, we need to be very understanding. Like, it's not about you as an individual. It's about the systems at work and like organizing against those systems that like actively oppress people. And uh, you accidentally falling into an anti-Semitic trope doesn't mean you're canceled. It doesn't mean you're the worst person in the world. It's like when you are actively trying to reproduce those and hurt the people around you that have become the problem. Just in general, understanding like, this isn't just about me, it's about everybody in the entire world and somebody telling me that I did something wrong or making a mistake. Even if you like, don't think you made a mistake, but like you hurt somebody's feelings or maybe an entire group of people's feelings and because they're uncomfortable with something you said, maybe it's just like, take a step back, take the lose. Unless it's like people using weaponizing their identity consistently and deliberately you there's not really much to gain or much to lose on a lot of the smaller microaggressions let them go and and, and stop focusing on like your individual status of i'm correct about this rather it's like what's best for everybody and what's best for like socialism as a whole you know, I mean, it's just, you don't necessarily want to be in a position of telling people who are on the receiving end of the microaggression that's kind of their responsibility to uh, just ignore it for the good of the socialist movement or whatever. I mean, I, I feel like, like ideally people would just realize that like in a society with a lot of oppressions, people are going to have mindsets and say things and do things that are going to not be super thoughtful and that, you know, I mean, people who are you know, should be given some benefit of the doubt to say, hey, I'm uncomfortable, cut that out. And then you can, you know, say, okay, I'll try to do better. Or at least just like, have some willingness to listen and to just, you know, accept that like somebody coming from this place deserves at least a bit of deference. That's usually how it's supposed to work. You know, people just need to realize that these are actual problems, like people aren't just making this stuff up. And the response to it should not be to try to silence people. And I think that that is hopefully a way that you can, you know, sort of like reconcile these things without it being like huge dogpile or a huge issue. I think that's that's a really good point. I, I think a larger thing connected to that and, and a point that I'm sometimes reluctant to make is if you're on the left, I would say welcome to a, a small aspect of the Jewish experience. Because you might be a Gentile, you might be 
a white person and cisgendered and heterosexual, but you are no longer in some small way part of the Uber culture. You now have to, in some way, earn the right for people to listen to you. People are going to be suspicious of you in some way. People are going to feel comfortable talking about you in a way that feels dehumanizing and terrible, while simultaneously, in some other ways, being viewed as a, a member of the privileged class. And you are maybe going to also get some flack for that in a way that feels contradictory and uncomfortable. And that conflict, that contradiction is probably going to be a point of contention in your identity and in your treatment that uh, is going to make you feel miserable sometimes. Hey, baby, that's the diaspora. <laughs> some, some small margin. That's one tiny iota of it. That's a little fragment of the experience. And, and the way that you find a place in that, the way that you find a home in it is not by attacking everyone else in it. It's by making a home in it. It's by recognizing that, that unity and solidarity with everyone else who's out here in the wilderness and working to survive is how we all survive. None of us are individuals out here. And finding our, our individuality as a collection of people is how we survive. It's not this obsessive individualism. It's why, you know, the vast majority of Jews are somewhat leftist. It's it's why a lot of right-wing Jews are just just so mad at us because <laughs> they don't feel represented. They don't feel like we're we're doing what they want because we're not. And I think you just have to kind of be willing to to listen to other voices. It's kind of one of the main things you can do to help us and, and not just as Jews, but to just help other people. And like we've kind of just, we keep coming back to when someone is speaking from their experience and if it doesn't grok your experience, you can't get mad about it. You just, you can't expend that anger on it. You've got to go, maybe this is something I don't know about and that's okay. So yeah. Do you have anything else we want to hit on before we start wrapping up? We've hit most of the things I was interested in, so. Johnny, how are we feeling? <laughs> I mean, like... I could go off on like five other tangents from this conversation, but I, I think we're good. <laughs> yeah, at the risk of saying something terrible and immediately being canceled, we do have three Jews in a voice call. So uh, <laughs> that's it. I've just invalidated the entire conversation we just had. Uh, we have found anti-Semitism on the left, and it's over now. But yes, uh, I really appreciate you two coming. Uh, again, if there's anything, if you two would like to kind of reintroduce yourselves, if there's anything you two would like to plug, it'd be at your Twitters, your various things that you do, or again, just, just your Twitter. Uh, this is your chance. Uh, well, my, my Twitter's nberlat, N-B-E-R-L-A-T. So I tweet a lot, so <laughs> people can find me there. <laughs> I'm Johnny. My Twitter at is uh, gaygamara, G-A-Y-G-E-M-A-R-A. And I also tweet you about... <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And I've been uh, Ava Cantor. I'm at Poe River Jam Band on Twitter. I don't recommend following me. It's the worst. Um, <laughs> thank you very much, YouTube. Ah! Anyone else who listened to this whole mess? Yeah, just thank you. Um, so there we go. Bye.